Could I be awkward? Do you think I could have that one that's a little bit higher? It's, it's me age, you know. Is that okay? Yeah, could we just stop that just a little bit? <laughs> that's marvellous. Are you all comfortable with that? Great, so am I, so that's good. Thank you very much indeed. You, uh, you heard about the bishop, didn't you, who was visiting a, a very, very small country church on a Sunday morning. Uh, so he was expecting quite a good congregation. And there were five people there in total. So uh, after the service, he said to the uh, vicar, did you tell them I was coming? And the vicar said, I jolly well didn't, but I'll find out who did. <laughs> yeah, thank you, especially to those who've been praying for Muriel. Appreciate your prayers very much indeed. It's a bit of a tough old journey at, uh, at the present time. So uh, we really do appreciate your prayers. Just want to say thank you while I have the uh, opportunity. Well, we're going to talk about, uh, about God and his relationship with the nations. And hopefully it will kind of stimulate some thinking uh, and it, above everything else, inspire our prayers and our vision and our action. Just a few uh, verses to start with. They're, they're th in three different places, so you don't need to worry to chase me around. I'll just read them. But Jeremiah 10:7 says, Who would not fear you, O King of Nations? That title belongs to you alone. Psalm 33, verse 12, what joy for the nation whose God is the Lord. And Psalm 85, verse 9 says, surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. God cares about nations and about the land that they occupy. At the heart of the salvation story is our personal forgiveness, our blessing, and uh, our integration in community. That's at the heart of the salvation story. But scripture also points to a God who seeks a relationship with a nation and indicates that nations have a place in his kingdom and are actually part of his future plans. If that's true, and I believe we'll see in a moment that it is, 
then the question arises, how should we think and pray and act in connection with our nation? What can be our legitimate vision? Does our work and our witness in the community where each of us is, does it connect to that wider vision? God established nations. The first mention of nations is in Genesis chapter 10. Those of us who are Camdenites, this is familiar territory at the moment, as you well know. But after the flood, Noah and his family emerge from the ark, and God gives him a mandate. Chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. His three sons are named. And then in chapter 10, we have a record of all the different peoples who emerge from them. If you have an NIV, your chapter is probably headed the table of nations. And it's actually unique in the literature of the period. It concludes in verse 32. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. First mention. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. When we get to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 8, we discover that God was involved in all of that. It says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples. So God is interested in nations as such. And in all the rich diversity that characterizes them. It's true whether it's the Maori culture in New Zealand, the Tuaregs in the Sahara, or the Welsh in the Rhondda Valley. He's interested in nations and in what makes them unique and special. If you like, it's his creativity on a global scale. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God speaks to a nation or to a city, which could often be kind of kingdoms in their own right. Sometimes in judgment, but sometimes calling them to their destiny. Because God has a purpose for nations. This is one of those things, once you begin to trace it through scripture, it's everywhere. Perhaps Paul had Genesis 10 in mind when he stood on Mars Hill in Athens. 
preaching to a pagan audience. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this, here's the purpose, so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. That is the heart of God for the nations, that they should relate to him in their uniqueness. And that they should live in the light of his universal rule. In the light of his glory as creator. God did this so that men would seek him. Genesis 17.4 God says to Abraham, This is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. So God's purpose was that Abraham's legacy of faith and obedience would shape the nations of the world. That God would be revered and that his values would enlighten the culture and the laws of each nation. See, the power of all this for me is that we can say with confidence that our own nation stands in that overarching purpose of God. Begins to give us somewhere to plant our feet. Somewhere to stand. It gives us a foundation for our praying, for our vision, and for our action. Our own nation, along with every other nation, stands in the purposes of God. There is a battle for the nations. We know that, don't we? Not surprisingly, the enemy has been engaged in a long-standing battle for control of nations, and ours is no exception. In Satan's kingdom, in the unseen realm, there are powerful spirit beings, high-ranking spirit beings, assigned to particular nations. Scripture is very clear about that. Charged with the responsibility to oppose the will of God for that nation. To influence a nation away from righteousness, away from justice, away from the rule of God. And as a result of that, nations historically have taken on grotesque shapes. We know it only too well. 
if you watched Andrew Marr's History of the World or read the book. It's all there. In fact, you could dispense with the book and just read Daniel 7. It's all there as well. A world in which justice and compassion had died, except as a faint cry on the lips of the oppressed. Nations that had taken on grotesque shapes, far, far different from what the Creator intended. Sadly, our own nation has been part of that ugly history. Now the empire is gone and we are a democracy with international responsibilities. But we only have to look around us to see that the marks of the enemy's hold are still everywhere. The enemy has had a heyday with nations. But God isn't finished, not yet. Not by a long chalk. God's strategy. After the flood, God's strategy was to choose the family of Abraham. And through him to create a nation in which he could demonstrate the blessings of his reign. So God gave Israel the enormous privilege of his immediate presence. They had that. First in the cloud, then in the tabernacle, and then, of course, in the temple. And he gave them the moral elevation of having his laws. Paul sums it up in Romans 9. You know it well. In the message, it reads like this. They had everything going for them. Family, glory, covenants, revelation, worship, promises, to say nothing of being the race that produced the Messiah, the Christ. They had it all. Isaiah 43.10. And God said to them, you are my witnesses. Chapter 11, Isaiah, verse 10. They were to be, quote, a banner to the nations. Do you see the strategy? They were to be a banner to the nations. A banner that would be emblazoned with the name of the God of heaven. A banner that said, these are the people whose God is the Lord. And that said, crucially, this is what it's like where God reigns. That was the plan. That was the plan. If you remember, the temple in Jerusalem, Isaiah 56, 7, was meant to be a house of prayer for what? All nations, wasn't it? And we know that the plan didn't work out. What God had hoped 
didn't come to pass. Israel lost their way and rejected the Messiah and were set on one side. And God did what he always does. He began again. God is always beginning again in situations that have got messed up. But this time he began with Jesus. And through Jesus' life and ministry, and through his death at the cross and his resurrection, God established an entirely new basis for the establishing and the growth of his kingdom on the earth. On the resurrection morning, God said to Jesus, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. That was a promise. That was a promise. And God's going to keep that promise. Not only did God begin again with Jesus, but he began again with a new people. Living out Jesus' life in the world. What did Peter call us? 1 Peter 2, a holy nation. So now we are called to be the people of the new creation. The new spirit-filled banner to the nation. Folks, we're it. We're it. We're it. There have been times when God has come to a nation. Britain and other parts of the world, history tells us, are special seasons when God has come to a whole nation. To borrow the words of Jesus from Luke 19, 44, times of visitation. Historians refer to them as revival. Personally, I, I don't mind what we call it. What matters is that God came and things changed. That's what matters. God came and things changed in a nation. You see, we, this is where it all begins to hit the road now. And frequently, in those very special seasons, the heart cry, the prayer, the vision that birthed it was for the nation. Many of us are familiar with the stories, and I'm not going through all the great stories of revival in nations around the world the last two or three hundred years. I simply want to remind us of one aspect. What was the primary characteristic of those seasons? 
I think it was an extraordinary awareness of the presence of God. The distinguishing feature. Someone who'd been present in the Welsh outpouring in 1904, looking back from 25 years later, said this. It was the universal, inescapable sense of the presence of God. We were singing about it earlier tonight. The strange result, he went on, was that wherever people gathered became a place of awe. Reflecting on the visitation in the Hebrides in 1949, Duncan Campbell said, in evangelism you have the two, the three, the ten, twenty, possibly the hundred, making confession of Jesus Christ. But the community remains untouched. When God the Holy Ghost comes, when the wind of heaven blows, suddenly the community becomes God-conscious. A God-realization takes hold. One more. Talking about Northampton in Massachusetts, the other Northampton. During the 18th century American awakening, Jonathan Edwards said this, in the spring and summer following 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of joy and yet so full of distress as it was then. Here's the point. When God visits a nation, his presence is known and recognized. The healing of the nations. Do any of you come across Sue Rinaldi, the songwriter, or any of her songs? Some of you have. She came out a pioneer, so I kind of knew her when she was emerging. Great songwriter. In the 90s, she wrote a, a song which I remember singing in pioneer conferences. I don't know if you, some of you know it, but Lord, we long for you to move in power. There's a hunger deep within our hearts to see healing in our nation. Send your spirit to revive us. Lord, we hear your spirit coming closer, a mighty wave to break upon our land, bringing justice and forgiveness. Lord, we cry to you, Heal our nation. Pour out your spirit on this land. We are praying right in line with the purposes of God. In John's final vision in Revelation 22, he draws on the imagery of Ezekiel 47. Verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river, all comes back to the river. The river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. The healing of the nations. Can you imagine nations being healed? Don't think of a literal city and a literal river. Think of the corporate people of God and the outward flow of the Spirit bringing healing to a nation. It's a big vision, isn't it? I think our nation has experienced a foretaste of this in the past. an example of a healing process in a whole nation that addresses or that addressed the injustices and the social needs of the time. Let me just remind you, because I want to earth these things. Let me just remind you very briefly. When dawn broke over London on the 1st of January, 1738, it was a wonderful day for our country. George II was on the throne. William Walpole was effectively the first prime minister. You know the story. Many of you do. About 60 people had gathered in London overnight to pray. Among them was John and Charles, the Wesleys just in their early 30s, and George Whitfield, who was only 23. Perhaps the most famous entry in Wesley's journal, well, one of the most famous entries in his journal, about three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came. Mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be our Lord. It was the seminal moment that initiated visitation of God that spanned in our nation some 50 years and in fact the effects of it were felt for another 50 years after that what happened well we know that thousands responded to the gospel up and down this land we know that but a lot more than that happened the atmosphere in society changed sensibilities changed one social reform after another followed in the wake of a divine visitation. A process of healing was going on in the nation. The river flowed. The tree, if you like, of the people of God flourished and the leaves began to bring healing to the nation. 
the list of reforms is endless. Job creation schemes. For instance, a London Methodist meeting room turned into a workshop for spinning cotton. Prison reform, John Howard. 1746, the first lending bank for the poor was established. See, when the Spirit of God is working, we get the exact opposite of what we've just had in the banking crisis. The exact opposite. You, you see, a nation getting healed affects society. And God's concerned about this. He's a God of justice. He's a God of love. He cares about people. And I'm going to run out of time. The Sunday School Movement, 1979, beginning Hannah Ball, beginning of free education, legal aid schemes, housing provision, John Wester's last letter to Wilberforce, keep going, keep going, you will get there. And so he did. What happened in those hundred years? The presence of God had changed. The moral climate, atmosphere in the nation opened the door for healing leaves to begin to touch. Eight years ago in 2007, a, a highly respected newspaper man, William Rees Mogg, wrote an article in the Times. It said, headline, Religion isn't the sickness, it's the cure. The 19th century, he wrote, was an age of social reform based on religious revival and the Christian faith. The 20th century was an age of religious decline and of the accelerating decline in social cohesion, as well as in faith. He concluded, religion is not the problem, it is the only possible remedy. When God comes to a nation, his presence is recognized by newspaper men. In the late 1990s, after the fire fell at Toronto, crossed the Atlantic and began to catch fire around many different places in the United Kingdom, Clifford Longley, another distinguished broadcaster, journalist, and, and writer, writing in the Daily Telegraph. He'd observed a remarkable change in the spiritual dynamic in many British churches and the rise of some very, very fast-growing ones. There still are. He wrote this. The reconversion of England so often oversold by evangelicals is suddenly almost believable. <laughs> almost believable, said Clifford Longley in the Daily Telegraph. Almost believable. That's a challenge, isn't it? What are we believing God for? Some of us have been round the block quite a few times now. What are we believing God for today? What do we believe in God for now? I will be finished by 528. That's a promise. The rest you will never know what was here, will you?
one lesson we mustn't learn. Uh, we mustn't forget. <laughs> we mustn't learn. One lesson we mustn't forget from the entire history. On every occasion, those special seasons of the visitation of God came to an end or lost momentum. One of the reasons, not least, spiritual warfare. And the lesson is this. We need more than a repeat of history to get the job done. That's why we must look forward and not back. We're inspired by the stories. I am and I'm sure you are. But we need more than that. We need a sustained move of the Spirit that will prepare the way for the final coming of the King. And I would suggest that there are at least, and this is just a sentence, two-fold strategies of the Holy Spirit at this time. I think one of them is the uniting of the churches of Jesus across a city, across a town, across our country. A unity that we will need if we're going to host the presence of God in a nation. The Holy Spirit's working on that right now. And the other, I would suggest, is getting the churches of Jesus out of its boxes and into connection with society, with a message. And the Holy Spirit's working on that too. I'm not very good at that. But I really appreciate those who are leading the way. We want to follow. I've got one and a half minutes. God will see the desires of his heart fulfilled. Revelation, oh gosh, Revelation 21, 23. The city doesn't need the sun, the moon. The glory of God gives the light. The Lamb is its lamp, and the nations will walk by its light. Hey, the nations will walk by its light. Kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Oh, my, my, my. God's purpose will come to pass. The God colors of every nation, all that rich diversity, redeemed and restored through the blood of Jesus, will have their place in the new creation. God's going to get there. We're on a great long journey that started a long time ago. But we're going to get there. We're going to get there. One last scripture. Revelation 15. The, the people of God victorious are singing, worshiping. Great and marvelous are your deeds. O Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts 
have been revealed. I shall keep my promise. God has a purpose for the nations. He has a purpose for our nation. And we are part of the plan. By his grace, may we be part of the fulfillment. Part of the fulfillment. When we hand on the baton, we want to be a lot closer to the goal than when we picked it up. Yes. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you won a victory at the cross over the enemy. Let's open the door for your kingdom to come. We offer ourselves to you, Lord. In our weakness, to be filled and filled and refilled with your Holy Spirit so that we might truly be a banner to the people in the villages around us to start with. And ultimately, with all your people, a banner to the nation. Oh, God, help us and strengthen our faith and vision. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you.